Please turn in your Bibles to our scripture reading, 1 Timothy chapter 3. We'll read the first 13 verses, which is a section where Paul talks about elders and deacons, and he lays out what we should be looking for in our elders and deacons. Let us read from God's Word. 1 Timothy 3, beginning at verse 1. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children, and their own household well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Here we end this reading of God's Word. Just a, a few comments before we dig into this passage. First of all, you, you see both deacons, uh, overseers, and deacons and overseers uh, the Greek word is episkopoi, but in the in the New Testament, though that that word episkopoi, overseer, is used pretty much interchangeably with another word presbyteroi, which means which is translated elder. So they generally mean uh, the same thing. It's referring to the same office. In this passage, Paul uses the the word overseer, and I think he does so because he's he's emphasizing the uh, the character of someone who must oversee the work of the church. You'll notice also that there's a lot of uh, similarity between the list of qualifications he gives for elders or overseers and also deacons. Uh, there's not like a whole separate category for one or the other. There's there's a lot of of um, uh, a lot of uh, cross-pollination, let's put it that way. A lot of, a lot of the characteristics are, are applicable to both. In fact, I would say all the characteristics are applicable uh, to both and uh, the requirements that he lays out. Um, I also want to say something else. Many of our churches are in crisis right now. And it's because of a lack of elders. Now, this is a, a pretty decent-sized congregation, and you only have one elder. 
Now, Matt didn't ask me to say this, and Mrs. Saulmeyer didn't ask me to say this, but Matt needs some help. And it's not because of anything that Matt is lacking. He's doing an extraordinary job. Right now, you realize, without a pastor, all the work of oversight of the church falls on his shoulders. Brothers, and I'm speaking to specifically brothers, you need to search your hearts. As we go through this passage, I want you to think, is it my responsibility? Is this God's will that I step forward and enter the process of training for an elder? Sometimes you're so intimidated by this concept of eldership. Oh, no, no, not me. He might be ready, but I'm not ready. Oh, no. Not me. And you, you think of all the demands. You, you might have to go to a presbytery. You might have to go to general assembly sometime. You might get involved in some pretty sticky issues because, you know, we're still sinners. Brothers, I want you to remember how this passage ends. Because while Paul does lay out some pretty high, high marks here, high high goals. He says this, and he's saying it to deacons, but it does apply to elders as well. Those who serve well as deacons or elders gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. There's a reward for those who serve well. There's a blessing for those who serve well. I want you to be thinking as we go through this, this week and uh, the the follow the next time I'm back, which I think will be the 21st of May, um, we'll be looking at this passage. In 1974, uh, a man by the name of Gene Getz published a book called The Measure of a Man. It's actually a a biblical and practical study of the passage that we read, along with other passages in Second Timothy and Titus, and and other. uh, He brought in some other passages as well, but he made an important point, and this was a, a book that was used in Bible studies for men's groups for many, many years. And you may have heard of it. You may have actually been in a Bible study uh, that used this book. But he makes a point in the introduction that while the words or the characteristics that are laid out in these passages are laid out in the context of looking for uh, men who are qualified to be elders and deacons, he makes this important point, which ought to be obvious. My friend Paul Vigiano says, it's a blinding flash of the obvious. These are characteristics that every Christian man ought to be pursuing. Not just a a select few who are going to be elders, but every Christian man ought to be pursuing these characteristics as part of your growth in grace, as part of growing up in Christ, as part of what we call sanctification and maturing, going from that stage of being a a baby who, who drinks milk to an adult who eats meat. Every one of us should be aware of these things and growing in these uh, in these characteristics. Notice I said growing. 
I don't think any of us in this life actually reach the full attainment of everything here. Some of us make more progress than others, and some of us progress more quickly than others, but we're all still on the path. We're still, all still on the path of growth. And so you can't say, well, I, I am not this person. No, you should be growing toward that person, though. We should be growing toward, and we should be encouraging each other to be growing toward that person. I think that's one reason why men's study groups and men's fellowships are, are important as well. There's, there's something very special about time of fellowship and time of, of iron sharpening iron that takes place very often in those fellowships and those study groups. And so he wrote this book, and it's been used many, it, for many years as a blessing to the church. Again, the passage is not just about a few men who might be elders in the church. It's about what all Christian men should be pursuing. Now, in a way, and it's, it is interesting that this passage comes right after Paul has talked about men and women and godliness in the church, and he's, in fairness, he's emphasized a little more the women's part. Uh, there more space in that passage uh, uh, aimed at, at uh, reaching women than men. And now, though, right after that, he comes back. Remember, we, we brought in that, that beautiful passage from Proverbs 31 on the, the virtuous wife, the virtuous woman. Think of this passage about uh, elders and deacons and what all men should be aiming for, think of this as the parallel passage to Proverbs 31. This is the, the corresponding, the complementary passage. We have one that looks, that gives us a portrait of the godly uh, woman, a godly wife, and here we have a portrait of men pursuing godliness and, and the characteristics that mark uh, that in, in a man, the measure of the man. Where does the office of elder come from? Well, if I were to give you a, a very detailed uh, explanation throughout the pages of church history about the office of elder, we would be here for another month or so, and so I'm not going to do that. I'm going to take you back to what I think is the very beginning, though, of a distinct office of elder, and it goes all the way back to the time of Moses. Oh, Moses, really? Yeah. See, Moses had gotten himself in a, in a bad spot. Moses, and think of this, Moses is leading a group of people, a nation, out of Egypt. He's leading them uh, in, in their journey toward the land of promise. And Moses is trying to solve all the problems for a nation. <laughs> the Bible tells us in Exodus chapter 18... Uh, that Moses would get up in the morning and, he, and people would be lined up to see him, bringing their disputes and their issues to him, and he would not stop until it was late at night. Now, his father-in-law, Jethro, and many of us have had good fathers-in-law, his father-in-law, Jethro, sees what's happening and says this, What you are doing is not good. You are going to wear out yourself and this people 
by the way the, 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 the way that you're trying to lead them. And Jethro proposes a solution. He says this. Moreover, this is uh, Exodus 18, beginning verse 21. Moreover, look for able men from all the people. Notice he gives some qualifications. Men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe. And place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. Now, is this exactly like the office of elder? No, but you see what's happening here is we're looking for men of a certain maturity and a certain character who will help Moses overseeing the, the, the leading of the people and their disputes and their issues that they bring to him. And, and those that can be solved on a lower level, those, those leaders of tens and fifties and so forth, of hundreds, can handle those things. If, if it's impossible for the issue to be settled, ultimately it may get up to Moses. You also have kind of a, a prefiguring here of, of our principle of ascending courts as well, from the local to the presbytery to the, to the general assembly. And by the way, that comes out more fully in the New Testament. But I think here you have, in a seed form, the essential uh, work and also some of the essential characteristics of those men who would lead in God's kingdom, the elder. Let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide for themselves. Uh, that passage ends, and it says this, So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses recognized the wisdom of Jethro's words and his advice and did what he said. I think Jethro was guided by divine wisdom. He was a worshiper of God, and he was, uh, he was very glad to see what God was doing with the people and with Moses, uh, his son-in-law. Elders, overseers, oversee the work of the church, the life of the church. Paul begins the passage, so turn back to 1 Timothy chapter 3. He begins the passage in a very interesting way. He says, this saying, the saying is trustworthy. And then he gives you the saying that is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Now, there are a few places in the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus, there are actually five places where Paul uses this introduction of a, a faithful or a trustworthy saying. This saying is trustworthy. I won't take you to all those passages, but if we looked at all of them, we could see that Paul uses this as a way of introducing a statement that is of great importance to the church. It is, it is either a theological truth, a doctrinal truth that is foundational for our faith, or, as in this case, it is a practical statement, a practical instruction that is also foundational for the life of God's people, for the life of the church for the good ordering of the church. And I would say that's really what this is. Remember when Paul writes to Titus, he says, when I left you in Crete, I, I left you there to put in order what is lacking. 
part of that, and and part of that solution was ordain elders. Ordain elders. Why is this important? Why would Paul introduce this rather simple statement? If a man desires or if he aspires to the office of elder, overseer, he is he desires a good thing, a noble task. That gives you an idea how important the office of elder is to the life and health of the church. It is foundational. That's why Paul said to Titus, ordain elders in every city. That's why this is important. It comes back several times in the New Testament. It is important for the life and health of the church to have a plurality of elders. That is a faithful saying. I think Paul would agree. <laughs> Let me tell you something. We, we teaching elders ministered, can often get a little carried away with ourselves as to how important we are. I'm God's gift to the church. Well, actually, there's a passage in Ephesians that does kind of say that. But we can run wild with that. Let me tell you, a church can exist and even thrive without a regular preacher. A church will never survive and thrive without ruling elders. That may surprise you. That may surprise you. Well, look at what's happening here. I have a privilege of filling in the pulpit, but you don't have a regular pastor you don't have a, a regular man here, uh, not just preaching, but also uh, pastoring and shepherding the flock. That work has fallen on, on the shoulders of an elder. The church will not long survive without elders. And that I, I think that this has been my experience over over 40 years of being ordained as a minister and I've seen I've seen men like me get a little carried away with their office and their position but I will but I have learned that churches don't thrive without elders this is I believe why Paul begins it this way this saying is trustworthy if anyone aspires to the office of overseer he desires a noble task. We might say this is the first qualification for an elder, that he actually wants to do the job. He actually wants to be a leader in the church. He wants to do it because of correct motives. This desire needs to spring from pure motives. We can look at what Peter writes, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, he says this, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, not because somebody put you on a guilt trip, not because somebody twisted your arm, but because you want to do it. 
as your service to God and your love for his church. Not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. See, Peter focuses here on on motivations. Why do you want to be an elder? Not to lord it over people, not not to be a tyrant. And yes, some guys get on that power trip. I'm an elder. You need to listen to me. Yeah, but, you know, I'm an elder. Shut up. No. Not, not for that, but being an example. Not for shameful gain. Peter, Paul says something similar to that. Willingly. That's what Paul is getting at. If you aspire to the work, if you want to do it willingly, not under compulsion, but willingly. So Peter emphasizes and amplifies some of the same points here that Paul has made in this passage. So do you desire to serve God and to help in the work of overseeing Christ's church? Paul uses this word aspire in, our, in my ESV translation, aspire to the work of an overseer, which means literally to reach out after something, to reach out for something, like you're pursuing it, and you're going to reach out and grab it and bring it in. We look for men who are willing to stretch themselves out a bit to reach after the worthy goal of being an overseer in the church. These are not supermen. They don't have superpowers. They're regular guys who are just maturing in their Christian walk and have reached a certain level not the, not the final result, but the certain level, a certain level of maturity. I'm going to break this rest of this passage into two sections. We're going to look at some of these uh, characteristics of an elder. And again, we're, you can find similar things in the list for deacons. Things that, re- that reflect on their own internal spiritual maturity. You might say their, their, their relationship between themselves and God, the maturity of their spiritual walk. But then we're also going to look at uh, characteristics that reflect on their relational maturity, because many of these characteristics are put to the test in relationships. In relationships. God created man for a relationship. He created Eve to be with Adam as a relationship. He starts a kingdom, and a kingdom is filled with relationships. And, and even the commandments are all about relationships. Love God and love your neighbor. The covenants are God's, establishing, uh, God's way of establishing relationships with people and setting the guidelines, if you will, the foundations for that relationship. Spiritual maturity. Paul says he should not be a recent convert. These are not in the, necessarily the same order that Paul gives them. He's not a recent convert. He has to have a level of maturity that will enable him to resist temptations that might come with the office. And I would say specifically that temptation to abuse authority, the temptation to over, be overbearing that a, young, a younger convert is going to be more susceptible to that temptation 
uh, in the church. And so someone who's not a recent convert, he's had time, like a, like a good wine, to mature and uh, to grow in, in, in the Lord and grow in maturity, to develop the fruit of the Spirit in his life. He should be able to teach. It was fashionable many years ago to kind of uh, twist this around. Oh, no, he, he doesn't need to be able to teach. He needs to be teachable. No, that's not what it says. He needs to be able to teach. He needs to have an understanding of God's Word, and, and at some level, he doesn't have to be a master teacher, but at some level, he needs to be able to communicate God's Word to people. And he's going to have to be doing that in situations where there are issues of sin and conflicts and so forth. So he's, he's going to have to, again, a level of maturity in both understanding and applying God's Word to specific situations, able to teach. He has grown in knowledge of God's Word, and he's able to communicate that knowledge to others. Paul also says he's self-controlled. We're going to take a little time because this this is a huge thing for Paul. Self-controlled, sober-minded, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not covetous, or a lover of money. All of these things are related. There is there is kind of like a, a complex. I think today we often use the word a syndrome of things that are related to each other that often appear together, certain symptoms. Well, these aren't symptoms in a bad sense, but they're qualities of life and maturity, signs of maturity that indicate a, mature, a spiritually mature person who has, let, who has developed a measure of self-control. And all of these characteristics that I've grouped together here are all intertwined in some way with, the, with self-control. Self-control, sober-minded, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not covetous, or a lover of money. Proverbs 25, verse 28 says this, A man without self-control is like a city broken in, into and left without walls. Nothing to stop the enemy from coming in and spoiling the city. The man without self-control. He lives in the moment. He cares nothing for consequences. He has no sense of self-control. By the way, doesn't that sound like our culture today? Because our, the, the, the quality of self-control that Paul emphasizes many places in Scripture, and by the way, do you remember when he was talking about wives? There were two places in the passage in sec, in 1 Timothy chapter 2 where he talks about self-control applied to women. So it's not like guys have self-control and women are of, and women have self-control and no, we all together are to be dealt developing self-control and it's one of the fruit of the spirit. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. I I do have to say our culture today is all about self. We don't worship gods of iron or gods of wood or stone. We worship the, the great God of self. Satan tempted Eve by saying, if you eat the fruit, you will be like God. Today we say, yeah, we made it. We're, we're our gods. We're our only gods. I have the perfect right to express myself on anything. I have the right 
to determine who I am, to, to, to identify myself in whatever way I want. There are no restraints. This is not something new. Look at, look at those of us who grew up in the 1960s. There is a popular song, Express Yourself. If it feels good, it must be right. I mean, I, we can, we, again, we could spend an hour on, on just this. I would say this, too, that given our current situation, which is not entirely new, there's nothing new under the sun. It takes, it takes a bit of backbone, guys, and a bit of wisdom to see how the world is going to pressure you in a certain way. But if you want to grow in grace, do not let the world put you in its mold. Do not be conformed to this world. Do not be conformed to those social and cultural pressures of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can prove what is that good and acceptable service to God, that will of God. Galatians 5, and 23, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. 2 Timothy 1, 7, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. 2 Peter 1, 5-8, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection. Paul is saying these are the building blocks of the, of the, of the maturing life, the maturing Christian life. And notice also it's a process. Add to, add to, add to, add to. Build one on top of the other. He says, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The flip side is also true. If they are increasing, if they are yours and are increasing, they will help you be effective and fruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just what we're looking for, brothers, elders. Let's talk about relational maturity for a minute or two. Paul says he should be the husband of one wife. Now, does that mean that every elder needs to be married? Church has kind of wrestled with the proper way to understand this, and basically the consensus, no, it doesn't mean that single men are, are barred from the office. What it does speak to, we think much more likely, is it is against polygamy. He should be the husband of wife. Polygamy was a, a very common practice in the ancient world. We find it all through the Old Testament. We find a little bit of it in the New Testament. Not as, not as frequent. But it does seem to be one of those things that while it was tolerated in times past with the clarity and the coming of Christ and the, the coming of the Holy Spirit in, in, in the church in a, in a very powerful way, with the maturing of the kingdom of God, the issue now becomes clear. It was God's intention for one man to have one wife. And while the Bible does show us that many of the patriarchs had multiple wives, it never says it was a good idea. 
In fact, a lot of problems develop because of polygamy. Solomon, who had hundreds of wives and hundreds of concubines, yet wrote this, Rejoice with the wife, singular, of your youth. So, husband of one wife, relational maturity. He keeps his household with dignity, and his children are under his authority. His children are running wild, becoming scandalous in the community. He is respected in his family. He is also respectable. The way he treats others in a variety of social settings is respectable. He, is, he, he treats others with respect, and he in turn is treated with respect in his work, in his family, at school, and so forth. These are also, again, closely related to being above reproach, being well thought of by outsiders, having a good reputation in his community. He is hospitable. He has an openness. He shares in God's blessings with others. He is generous. Hospitality is built on those things of openness, of sharing with God in God's blessings with others, of being generous. Hebrews 13.2 says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Many of us think that that's actually a reference to the time in Abraham's life when he was visited by three <clears throat> men. And as those men converse, you realize that actually one of them is God, who has come down and taken a human form for the specific purpose of meeting with Abraham. But what did Abraham do? Sarah, go get the lamb, prepare it, make bread, prepare it. We have guests. We will feed them. I'm still, I'm told today that still in the Middle East, hospitality is highly, highly valued. And I, I think we have stories from some of our missionaries that attest to that, that the, that the level of hospitality is amazing uh, in their cultures. But we should do it not just because it's something culturally expected, but because, let me, let me put it this way, the church is the household of God, and you and I have been shown divine hospitality by being brought into his house. And in his household, we are given food. We are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. We are given bread and wine to eat. He shares with us from the storehouse of his treasures all manner of grace and mercy. He says, abide with me. Live in my house. He says this, 
in my father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. In my father's house are many. That's divine hospitality. Just as we are to love as we have been loved, just as we are to forgive as we have been forgiven, we are to show hospitality as we too have received from the abundance of God's grace. As I said before, many of these things are simply the extended application of the two great commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, the ladies have been patiently listening as I've talked mainly to the men. I'm sure there's a few things that they picked up. Ladies, wives, family members, remember the role of Eve in the creation. Adam was not able to fulfill God's creation mandate by himself. He needed the helper that was suited for him. Eve was created specifically to be suited for Adam to help him complete his work as having dominion over the creation of, of, of filling the earth and so forth. I want you to think, wives, of your husbands as potential elders and seeing you have a role in this too. And your role is to enable your husband to take his place as a leader in God's kingdom. Men, are you ready? You should be pursuing these things as a matter of your Christian growth. But do you want to use what God is doing in you for the benefit of his kingdom. Wives, young people, family members, it may well be that God is going to call your father or your husband to a specific area of work in his kingdom, in the church. Are you ready to help? Are you ready to support? Are you ready to to demonstrate your willingness to help him do what God is calling him to do. The church needs elders. It's essential for the health of the church. Again, I'll make it a little more personal. Matt needs some help. He's carrying this burden on his own right now. And I think his family is being very patient, very supportive. I'm sure his family would like to see some help too. I'm not laying a guilt trip on you. I'm calling you to consider if this is God's will for you. We're not looking for supermen. 
We're looking for a few good men. Oh, boy, that could be a recruiting theme, couldn't it? Are you ready? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for equipping us for works of service. Indeed, all of us as believers are to be equipped be uh, becoming equipped for works of service in your kingdom. And you have equipped some to be leaders in your kingdom, and we pray that you would help those who you have equipped to step forward to take on the responsibilities of being an overseer in your church. We pray, too, that as some do, that they will find that blessing of of uh, that you have promised uh, for those who serve well, that they will have a good standing, gain a good standing for themselves, and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. We pray for your blessing on this church as it looks for a new pastor and also perhaps as it finds elders who will join with our brother in overseeing the work of the church. For it's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.